Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Okay, hi everyone. In this podcast, we're going to go over questions that were submitted related to Hashimoto's. So here's the first question. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's in 2017, and I have normal TPO, but my TGB antibodies have been greater than 2,500 for several years. In 1997, I had two months of radiation following a neck dissection. I've also had long COVID since early 2020. Could either of these factors be the cause of the ongoing high TGB antibodies? So let me um, give you some background on some parts of this question that are being asked. So first of all, you know, the main two main the two main antibodies that are involved with checking for Hashimoto's are thyroglobulin and, and TPO antibodies. And if either one of those are positive, that suggests the person has uh, Hashimoto's. And then you can look at the antibodies uh, over time. And we have a specific podcast just on the antibodies. We, we get into that with great detail. But the concern is that one of these antibodies is high and it's been high for several years. Well, that's that's not uncommon. For most people that have Hashimoto's, they're going to have antibodies that are high throughout the rest of their life. They're never really going to go back to zero. Every now and then, some people have Hashimoto's, their antibody counts may go back down, uh, sometimes below laboratory reference range, but it doesn't necessarily happen to most people. As a matter of fact, most people can go into remission and they're still going to have elevated high antibodies. But if you person, like in this question here, they had long COVID and then they had radiation therapy, those things are going to trigger the immune inflammatory response. So it's very likely that they could be a contributing factor to the TG antibody still being elevated. So typically when someone has an autoimmune disease and antibodies are being checked, so with thyroid, for example, in this case, it's thyroglobulin antibodies, um, anything that can really trigger the immune response may cause a spike in those responses. So sometimes it could be exposure to a, a food sensitivity for those who have things like celiac disease. Um, a viral infection absolutely can. And the study that we published in uh, Frontiers Immunology where we checked for um, which uh, autoimmune reactions can be triggered by SARS-CoV-2 uh, or COVID, um, we found that the thyroid is definitely a target site. So we, we and there's been some reported case studies of people getting infections and having their thyroiditis triggered. So to answer this question, yes. So having uh, infection uh, with COVID or having radiation therapy could be a reason why your antibodies still are elevated. And those two factors are things that were unfortunately unavoidable Um and uh, for those that are listening, if you have autoimmunity, yeah, you should know that there are certain infections and any kind of inflammatory oxidative stress patterns can cause activation of the autoimmune response. Okay, let's go to the next question. I have Hashimoto's and watch your mast cell video. This is also a podcast where you suggest that Cyrex 12 pathogen screens uh, 
at Array 11 for chemicals and heavy metals. My practitioner said that they were so inexpensive that they might not be thorough or accurate test. Will these tests be reliable answers? I need peace of mind and ordering good lab test. Well, the big question is, how do you know if a lab test is reliable when you're working with a laboratory? There's There are a lot of uh, um, labs that may not be very credible. So the first thing you want to do is you want to go to the website of the lab and see if they have CLIA certification. And and also, even better, if they're uh, certified, recognized by the American College of Pathologist. And if they have CLIA, C-L-I-A certification, and uh, even better, if they're uh, approved by the American College of Pathologist, then you have a fantastic lab. If you don't see that information on their website, you definitely want to call the lab. And if they don't have that, you have to be very, very wary if the lab tests are uh, valid and that they're following standard operating procedures and the standard that you definitely want your health assessed by. For sure, Cyrex uh, is CLIA certified and approved by the American College of Pathologists. The key thing with Cyrex is the reason they can bring their costs down is because of the way they formatted their operations. And uh, I'm on an advisory board for Cyrex and I can I can guarantee that their lab tests are the high standards and they do have the, the necessary certification accreditation. So that's just the that's just the model of Cyrex. They have they have developed uh, very expensive immunology profiles in a way where their structure of running these tests by clustering together in one single ELISA plate makes them be able to bring their costs down dramatically. Uh, and and they're great tests to to look at autoimmunity. Okay, next question. I have been doing coffee enemas twice a week for more than five years. I use four tablespoons of organic medium roast coffee. I now only feel the vagus wave once or twice during my holding time. Do I need a light roast to feel more contractions or a stronger brew? So I really don't know <laughs> what a vagus wave is. So let me explain a few things, uh, some background on coffee enemas and why people do them, and then try to get to this question for those of you guys that may not be familiar with them. So there's different types of enemas out there, right? The most common one is just like a saline water enema for people that get constipated, um, stool softening enemas for, for people that have fecal liths or really hard compacted stool. And there's coffee enemas. And coffee enemas are a little bit different because coffee itself is a stimulant. And the caffeine in coffee activates what are called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And these are receptors that activate the smooth muscles of the gastrointestinal tract. So your gastrointestinal tract has all these smooth muscles that cause contraction, and so does your gallbladder. So typically, coffee enemas are usually done with people to try to activate that contraction of the gallbladder and also activate the contraction of the intestinal smooth muscles. So people that have like constipation or people that have like gallbladder sludge and uh, really want to get those muscles activated will typically do a coffee coffee enema. Now, when a person does a coffee enema, the, the stronger they, the stronger the coffee, the more aggressive it is for their effects. So it sounds like this person is going to only feel a vagus wave. So I'm not sure what a vagus wave is, but for some people, um, they may really feel their gastrointestinal motility kicking in and they can hear the, you know, <laughs> their intestinal tracts contracting and they can feel it. And that's going to happen from, uh, enough uh, caffeine saturation in the coffee when someone's doing an enema. And um, normally with a coffee enema, the person will uh, 
insert the enema and then hold the coffee contents in their bowel for a minute or two for as long as they can. And they would then, uh, you know, have a bowel movement. So the bottom line is this, if you feel like you need more contractions and you're not having the same effect, you definitely can increase your coffee concentration. And, and that's really the key thing. How much, how much water you use in your, in your, in your coffee for the enema. And, uh, at some point though, if you're having, if you're having, uh, an emptying of your bowels, then you've, you've, you have achieved the right dosage. So that's, uh, the key things to understand about coffee enemas. Okay, next question. How do the adrenals affect Hashimoto's? Can exhausted adrenal glands trigger a thyroid storm? Okay, well, let's talk about what a thyroid storm is and, and how the adrenals uh, ha have a role to play with that. So a thyroid storm is really an aggressive autoimmune response where the immune system has such severe destruction of the thyroid gland that tissues that contain thyroid hormones break down and then that causes a flood of hormones in the bloodstream and the person gets into what's called a hyperthyroid hypr hyperactive state not hypo and then they get trembling and nervousness and insomnia and uh, uh, tremors uh, and they basically feel completely and totally stimulated so that's what a thyroid storm is so how do the adrenals affect Hashimoto's? We'll talk about, but can exhausted adrenals trigger thyroid storm? No. So a thyroid storm is not going to be caused by exhausted adrenal glands. A thyroid storm is going to be caused by something that aggressively activates the immune system. So it could be like a viral infection. You could have an autoimmune disease, like autoimmune thyroid disease, and get a viral infection, and then you get a thyroid storm. Most of the time, they really don't know what triggers a thyroid storm, but it typically is some type of pattern that really flares up and activates the immune system. So, you know, what do the adrenal glands have to do with it? Well, and, and then what are, what are exhausted adrenal glands? So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, with these questions, we have to kind of discuss like what's uh, lingo that's used on the internet and, and uh, the field of alternative medicine to what is actually used as a conventional diagnosis. So there's no conventional diagnosis of exhausted adrenal glands. But what, what's meant by that is that a person whose adrenal gland function is less than um, ideal, and that can easily be classified uh, by people that measure their cortisol circadian rhythms throughout the day and their levels are not in the uh, normal ranges. So they may be like depressed in the morning or uh, they can be low all throughout the day. And, and that's the term that people use as exhaust and adrenal glands. So objectively, that, that is shown with the adrenal salivary index testing. And adrenal salivary cortisol testing is done by all the conventional medical laboratories these days. Uh, 20 years ago, they were new and people didn't know how to look at them. But they are a commonly accepted test now. There's thousands of paper that uh, have shown their validity and reliability. And they're a great way to measure the release of cortisol throughout the day. So lots of people have these, you know, so-called adrenal exhaustion patterns where their cortisol levels are just low all throughout the day, um, or the most common thing is just low in the morning. They kind of have a kind of like flat line of cortisol output throughout the day. So normally cortisol should be high in the morning, then it should go down. So people that have exhausted adrenal glands, their cortisol levels are just flatlined uh, throughout the day. And they typically have a hard time waking up in the morning. They typically have to push the snooze button to get out of bed. They typically crash in the afternoon. They're typically prone to hypoglycemia and they have to eat every few hours. They really crash. And um, can those patterns, uh, adrenals impact Hashimoto's? So the answer is yes and no. So let me explain what I mean by that. So 
if a person has adrenal glands that are less than ideal, meaning they have that flatline cortisol response, then they're very prone to becoming hypoglycemic. And hypoglycemic means their blood sugar levels drop. Most people know that as being like hangry, they get irritable, they get anxious in between meals, and once they eat, they feel better. So every time a person has their blood sugar levels drop, become hypoglycemic or become hangry, right? It's a term that's that's being used that's very appropriate, uh, hungry and angry at the same time. What's making a person hangry is, is epinephrine or epinephrine uh, uh, that's being released. So your adrenal glands release cortisol, and they also release these hormones called epinephrine or epinephrine. But normally cortisol is released so you can break down your stored energy as glucose in your liver. And if you don't have enough cortisol, uh, what happens is the, the adrenal outer portion called the adrenal medulla releases these uh, adrenaline hormones um, and they make you very irritable. They make you very angry. They increase your heart rate. They make you anxious, but they start to, they start to be involved in a process called gluconeogenesis, which is a term that's used when your um, body is trying to break down protein. Um, so if you don't have enough cortisol to break down your stored form of sugar called glycogen, then your adrenal glands have to put out something called epinephrine to do that. But at, at the end of the day, when your blood sugar levels drop and your adrenals respond to that, that is a physiological stress response. And physiological stress responses activate a key immune messenger protein called IL-6, interleukin-6. And this interleukin-6 response is an active trigger for... Um, the autoimmune response. So interleukin-6 actually turns on something um, that's called T-helper-17 cell activity. And T-helper-17 cell, T, T helper cell activity is going to have a significant impact on, uh, on flaring up um, some people's autoimmunity. So it's not uncommon for people that have like exhausted adrenal glands to then have their blood sugar levels drop, and as their blood sugar levels drop, they create the stress response, and their immune system really gets activated. It's probably not going to cause a thyroid storm, but it'll definitely cause ongoing inflammatory immune reactions for people. And one of the things that you really should be aware of is that if you do have um, symptoms of less than ideal adrenal function or so-called adrenal exhaustion, you, you're going to be have a tendency to have your blood sugar drop and may have to eat every two or three hours. And if you miss a meal and it goes too long and you have this physiological stress response that's created, which will then make you feel so-called hangry, you, you are, and you are activating your immune response to some degree. So to answer your question, how do the adrenals affect Hashimoto's? They affect it because they make you vulnerable for hypoglycemia since they can't keep your blood sugar level stable very well. And then that creates a physiological stress response, but it's not going to be enough to cause a thyroid storm. Okay, let me go on to the next question. When we go for our blood test in the morning, should we take our thyroid medication beforehand and should, should we be fasting? <clears throat> so if you're fasting, you can definitely take your thyroid hormones. It's not going to throw off your lab test. It really depends on what you're trying to accomplish and what your um, doctor is trying to figure out. For some people, um, they want to know if they're actually, you know, in a hypothyroid state and what degree. So for them, they may not want to take their thyroid replacement. But so before they go into the lab test, that they're not any influence uh, of their um, exogenous hormones on their blood test. Thyroid hormones get cleared up pretty quickly. So <clears throat> if they haven't taken anything uh, that for a 24-hour period, then the next morning when they get their blood test, they can get a 
a better picture of what their thyroid gland function is without the influence of hormones. And the higher the TSH, uh, the more uh, indication that there is that their thyroid gland has really been compromised. So what's measured for, for thyroid function is a test called thyroid stimulating hormone. And we have an entire podcast just on different types of thyroid hormones and what they all mean. But the conventional test to measure thyroid function is a test called thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH. And that's a hormone that's actually released by the pituitary gland. So when your thyroid gland isn't working, your pituitary gland tries to make it work. And it releases thyroid stimulating hormone to stimulate it to work. So if you have conditions in where your thyroid gland's been really destroyed and you don't have enough what are called follicular cells to produce thyroid hormones, the pituitary has to release high amounts of TSH. So you can have someone has an elevated TSH level of, let's say, 7. You can have someone who has an elevated TS, TSH level of, of 70. You can e- even have people that have elevated TSH levels high, over 100. But typically, any level of TSH uh, elevation above a lab range is diagnostic for hypothyroidism. So if you're not going in on meta and any type of thyroid replacement uh, and you get your blood test, that's going to be a, a good reflection of what your thyroid gland is doing without the influence of, of hormones. However, most people are going in, taking a replacement in the morning and then getting their blood draw done to see if they're having adequate amounts of uh, hormone replacement. So what happens with most people is they first get diagnosed with like Hashimoto's, they get placed on a dosage, they'll repeat the test, and they'll see if that is enough for them. And what they're determining is if their TSH was high initially and they had hypothyroidism, they put them on thyroid hormones. And once they have thyroid hormones in their body, there isn't a need for the pituitary to stimulate the thyroid gland. So TSH levels will go down. And if they have enough thyroid hormones, their TSH levels will go back in normal, in the, in normal reference range. And that's great. And that's, that's that, that'll become the dosage that the patient takes. Um, now, what happens is over time, people that have Hashimoto's, which is 90% of autoimmune thyroid people, is that their thyroid gland will get destroyed more and more over time from the autoimmune response. And this is why the standard approach is to come back every year to, to recheck the thyroid, which is basically rechecking TSH, and see if they need to increase the dosage. And if they come back in a year and their TSH is now high again, that means they don't have enough replacement, that they need to add more to their current protocol. So their dosage of thyroid hormones would go up. So that's how that's how it's done. So to answer your question, like should you when you when you go in for your thyroid blood test, should you be taking thyroid medication or not? It really depends on what you're trying to look at. If you're trying to look at what your thyroid function is just by itself without any medication or influence, then then you would want to be on your medication or your thyroid replacement. If you want to see if the thyroid medication or thyroid hormones that you're taking are working for you and they're keeping you out of a hypothyroid state and your body has enough of the dosage it needs, then you want to be on them. And then the the key thing is to see how that TSH level looks. If your TSH levels are high, even while you're on replacement, it suggests that you may need to be in a higher dose. Okay, I hope that answers that question. Okay, next question. Are there situations when patients no longer need thyroid replacement therapy? And if so, what are those cases? Well, let's be very clear about a few things. When we we talk about thyroid replacement therapy, it it depends on the situation. 
So one reason someone can become hypothyroid is because, let's say they had a thyroid nodule, ends up being like thyroid cancer, they have to take out and do, do a thyroidectomy and take out a large part of their thyroid gland, and now their thyroid... Uh, tissue is not enough to meet the body demands of their own replacement. In those cases, they would be on replacement uh, forever because they just don't have enough thyroid gland tissue to meet the demands of their body. Now, another reason, uh, the most common reason people go on thyroid replacement is because they end up with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease attack against the thyroid gland. And over a period of time, that autoimmune response against the thyroid gland will destroy thyroid tissue. And as their thyroid tissue gets destroyed, um, they get to the point where they don't have enough integrity of those thyroid cells to meet their thyroid hormone demands. And at that point, they go to their doctor, they have all these symptoms of hypothyroidism, TSH levels, which measure their function, become abnormally high, which suggests the body's working overtime to, to pituitary is working overtime to release TSH to make the thyroid gland work. And then at that point, they need to be on replacement. Now, there are um, scenarios where in the very early stages before they get to thyroid replacement, if they have antibodies, they, they don't progress there. But in, in reality, most people eventually end up being on replacement. And in reality, most people with Hashimoto's end up being on replacement forever. Um, there are times when people miss this. So what will happen is, you have to understand, when you have Hashimoto's, your uh, thyroid gland is having these constant attacks against against your immune immune system uh, attacking it. And if there are fluctuations where your immune system is attacking your thyroid gland, there are times when your immune response against the thyroid gland breaks down your thyroid tissue, releases those hormones in bloodstream. So it looks like your thyroid uh, levels are normal, but it's really the immune system breaking down your thyroid hormones that normalizes your levels. So it may, may seem like you don't need replacement, especially if you've been on off replacement for a period of time. So there's windows of time where people have these, these patterns that really do show up uh, as well. But for the most part, most people have Hashimoto's need to be on replacement for the rest of their life. We don't see like massive regeneration of their thyroid tissue coming back, even when they do everything with their dietitian lifestyle uh, that counteracts the autoimmune inflammatory ongoing destruction that's there, even if they get into remission. So for most people that have, uh, that have Hashimoto's, they'll need to be on replacement forever. And here's the thing. And if they're not, it's really bad things happen. Like if they're not, and they actually get into a hypothyroid state, their brain is going to degenerate much, much faster. They're going to lose bone density and bone quality and develop osteoporosis. They're going to end up with um, gallbladder problems. Being in a hypothyroid state causes bilary stasis, so you get gallstones. Um, you can have more of a tendency to have be constipated because thyroid hormones are really important for gastrointestinal motility. So <laughs> you gotta, you got to really understand that... Um, Lots of things can go wrong if, if you are actually in a hypothyroid state and you, and you don't take your replacement. Now, what I've seen happen over and over again, which is something you should know about, is that some people just go, I don't want to be on any medications, I don't want to be on any kind of drugs, and they just, they know they have hypothyroid and they go off it. And then they get like their thyroid TSH measures checked and, and their TSH levels look normal. And they go, okay, great, I fixed it. Maybe we're 
they were taking homeopathy, maybe taking nutraceuticals, maybe they were doing anything, who knows? Maybe they were sucking their thumb. It doesn't really matter. There's going to be times when even those that have hypothyroid, their TSH levels look normal. And they may have had like the snapshot where their TSH is normal, typically right after they had a thyroid autoimmune attack, breaking tissue and releasing hormones in their bloodstream so it looks normal. And then they go, okay, I'm fixed it. I don't need to be on thyroid hormone replacement anymore. And they may go, and then they may decide they don't need it, and they don't check the thyroid hormone levels for the next two, three years. And in that two to three years, they've been in a thyroid hormone deficiency state. And now their neurodegeneration and their osteoporosis and their intestinal gut regeneration, all these other areas of the body have not had what it needed for normal metabolic activity. And those tissues start to degenerate away. So be very careful with that. Typically, even if you, if once the antibodies show up and you have Hashimoto's, you don't want to, you know, just do one test and see a normal thyroid and go, I don't need replacement ever again. And then wait years and years and years. That can really end up costing you some very important tissues like your bone and your brain. Now, the other thing you need to know is that there are some people that are inappropriately placed on thyroid replacement. They're, they're not placed on it because they have an issue, but just because they have fatigue and depression. So there are definitely groups of physicians out there, the anti-aging group, uh, the uh, group of uh, practitioners out there that go, I don't really care what your lab tests are. Uh, you should benefit from some thyroid replacement just because your energy is low or just because you have lower depression. And, and then a patient goes on thyroid hormone replacement, even though they were never really hypothyroid. And, and what happens to the patient? The patient feels better. <laughs> So, you know, you give anyone thyroid hormone replacement, they're going to feel better for a little bit of time. They have a little bit more energy. Just like if you give most guys testosterone, they'll have a little bit more energy and greater stamina for a couple of weeks. And then it just doesn't work like it needs that that initially did. So if you have not been uh, properly uh, treated, by conventional means, which means you shouldn't be on replacement unless you have hypothyroidism, then you, then you can probably go off at some point. And the way you know that it, uh, whether you need it or not is you basically, uh, have a thyroid test done while you're not taking a replacement. And if you're not taking any kind of replacement and your TSH is within normal levels, then it's a strong indication that you probably never needed that thyroid hormone replacement. Uh, I've seen so many patients that, um, were placed on thyroid hormones that really didn't need it. Um, and the problem with that is that it, it actually atrophies the thyroid gland. So if you don't need thyroid hormones and you go on it, it's going to actually shrink the thyroid gland. Um, and there's plenty of research that shows that if you have thyroid hormones more than you need to, you actually can change your bone quality. So excess thyroid hormones really impact bone quality, not bone density, but bone quality. So that's one issue. And then excess thyroid hormones can also start to impact neurotransmitters in the brain and receptor site sensitivities to dopamine, serotonin, GABA. They get a whole list of different mood and other conditions that take place because of thyroid replacement, even though initially the person felt good on it. So you got to be very careful with those, those issues. Okay, let's go on to the next question. Would a brain neuroquant MRI exasperate Hashimoto's or other autoimmune symptoms? recommended for CIRS, chronic inflammatory respiratory syndrome. Yeah, I mean, there's a protocol out there, Shoemaker Protocol, and basically they believe everyone should get a series of tests and follow-ups, kind of like a standard thing. As with all general protocols, when you start doing stuff like that, you over-treat, over-test, and mismanage. But 
let's talk about what NeuroQuant MRI is. So NeuroQuant, spelled N-E-U-R-O, N-E-U-R-O-Q-U-A-N-T, is basically a regular MRI that you would normally get. It's just they use software to measure and determine your brain volume size. And this is really a great test. So NeuroQuant is typically used anytime someone has symptoms of early Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment, and they want to compare their brain volume with other people in their own age group. So normally when you get an MRI done, um, you know, the, the neuroradiologist or the radiologist is going to read the MRI and they're going to look to see if you have had a stroke or a tumor, but just on visual inspection of the MRI, unless you have massive and severe atrophy of your brain, they're not going to know if your brain volume is really different from one side to the other, just from like naked, just, just from a naked inspection of your report without any software. They're not going to know if the volume of your brain is comparable to people in your age group. And this is where neuroquant testing comes in. So neuroquant testing comes in where it's called a volumetric analysis of your, of your brain MRI. And, uh, you'll get like a printout of where it is in relation to other people your age group. And then you have your baseline. And then in the future, you can compare your baseline and you can see if areas of your brain, for example, associated with uh, dementia, like your the area of the brain called the hippocampus, the areas of the brain in the medial temporal lobe regions, if they're actually shrinking over time. If they're shrinking over time, then you're headed towards dementia, Alzheimer's. You may already be there if the volume levels are bad enough and you've lost uh, function in your daily activities and you know you have symptoms of cognitive impairment but the neuroquant testing itself is very useful however doing a neuroquant mri just like doing any other mri shouldn't flare up your hashimoto's so that's the question would a brain neuroquant mri exacerbate hashimoto's and the answer is no and uh, it is a very useful test for people that have hashimoto's because just having hypothyroidism increases your risk for all neurodegenerative diseases, especially Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. So if you have hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, you really want to evaluate your symptoms. And if you're having problems with memory and recall, if you're forgetting where you put your keys, if you're forgetting uh, names, uh, you're forgetting events that took place, it's not a bad idea to get a neuroquant MRI to, to see what's happening with your brain and use that as your baseline and go from there. Okay, let's go into the next question. When to consider starting thyroid replacement hormone for somebody with TSH still in the normal reference range, very high antibody counts, and up and down hyperhypothyroid symptoms? Okay, so it sounds like what the person's asking is they have Hashimoto's, they have hypothyroidism. But their thyroid-stimulating hormone, which is used to diagnose hypothyroidism and a need for replacement, is within the normal reference range. So most most physicians are not going to put someone on thyroid hormone replacement if their TSH levels are normal. So that's number one. Now, some 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 physicians that are more aggressive with their approach may put people just on symptoms on replacement. But the standard approach is not to put someone on replacement unless their TSH levels are outside the reference range. Now, just because you have antibodies, thyroid antibodies, which contributes to you have Hashimoto's, doesn't mean that that autoimmune response has damaged your thyroid tissues enough so you can't make them. So when you look at the thyroid gland, the thyroid gland has cells called follicular cells, and these follicular cells produce thyroid hormones. And with Hashimoto's, you have 
two autoimmune antibodies that become activated and elevated. One's called thyroid perioxidase, TPO, and the other one's called thyroglobulin. And when your immune system starts to attack those parts of your thyroid, TPO and thyroglobulin, it starts to destroy those cells that produce thyroid hormones. And over time, um, you eventually become hypothyroid, meaning your TSH levels are high. So if you actually have a normal TSH, um, that's not really a time to, to go on replacement. And if anything, if you're in this question, the, the patient's asking, or the person's asking, and they're still having hyper and hypothyroid symptoms, and that's happening because the thyroid gland is not controlled well. So it's flaring up and then calming down and then flaring up and then calming down. And when you have those flare-ups and calm-downs like that, that means that the autoimmune response is very aggressive and that needs to be under control. So it sounds like the battle at this point with a normal TSH and high antibodies and fluctuating hyperhypo symptoms is really to see what you can do to calm down the autoimmune response and then periodically check the TSH levels. And if TSH levels eventually become elevated, that's when um, it would be appropriate for, for replacement. Okay, next question. What would be the top areas you would start digging into where a person has covered a lot of typical things like they're on adequate hormone replacement, they've worked to improve diet and lifestyle, but they feel poorly with no obvious case? So let me see if I understand this question. What would be the top areas you would start digging into where a person has covered a lot of typical things like they're on adequate hormone replacement, they've worked to improve diet and lifestyle, but they feel poorly with no obvious cause? Well, the bottom line is it could be anything. <laughs> so there isn't a top area to support without really looking at a person's medical history. So a person could feel poorly because they, they have, let's say, for example, let's be specific to Hashimoto's. A person with Hashimoto's could still feel poorly even though they're on replacement, thyroid hormone replacement, because their autoimmunity has never really been managed. So one of the key things that happens with Hashimoto's, which is very unique, is that the inflammatory response from the autoimmunity makes thyroid receptor sites not respond well to thyroid hormones. So as long as their um, autoimmunity is really activated, they never have that adequate thyroid receptor response, even though they're on replacement. This is why I think back in 2010 is when I published my first book, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms? My lab tests are normal. And it was partly because, you know, most people I was seeing years and years ago when I first started practicing was, every single thyroid symptom checked off on a questionnaire form and they were on thyroid replacement with normal TSH levels. So the, the answer, then the question is, why is that happening? And then if you look through the literature, you see that these, these inflammatory responses make these thyroid response, responses not work. And then I started working with them from an autoimmune perspective on diet, nutrition, and lifestyle. And as their autoimmunity inflammatory responses came down, even though their thyroid medication was the same and their lab test was still the same, their thyroid symptoms started to dramatically improve. That's the whole concept of looking at Hashimoto's from an autoimmune perspective. So just because you're in replacement, uh, that doesn't mean you've covered things. And if you still feel poorly, even though you've been working on your diet and lifestyle, it just may not be enough. Like you may have been gluten-free, but you know gluten isn't enough. You may have to be on an autoimmune paleo diet where you have to avoid really other proteins as well, like gluten, dairy, all grains, or things like lectins and nightshades. You may think your lifestyle is great, but you're actually having your blood sugar drop throughout the day, causing the stress responses like we talked about earlier. That could be flaring up your autoimmunity. Um, you could be overtraining and you think, well, well, you're exercising and that's great for you, but you're not 
getting enough rest and recovery. And that's really a factor in your lifestyle. So, um, just because you're on thyroid replacement and have done something for diet and lifestyle, uh, if you still feel poorly, then you need to, you need to dig deeper. Okay. And you can also check out the course we put together, Hashimoto Solving the Puzzle, where we help you walk you through all the steps with dietitian lifestyle. I'm pretty sure if you go through that program, the way we've, the way we've organized it and follow all the workbooks and steps and questionnaires and all different sections, you may find some things that could make a significant impact on something that you may have missed. So check that out at drknews.com. Check out the course. It's called Hashimoto Solving the Puzzle. Okay, next question. <clears throat> are there times when the antibody levels are not a good reflection of the degree of autoimmunity? Absolutely. So <clears throat> antibody levels are going to go up and down at various times, but antibodies themselves don't destroy any of the actual thyroid tissue. Antibodies just bind to the tissue, and then what are called T-cells come in and destroy them. So we'll have a whole, whole podcast just on this antibody response, but antibody levels elevating doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting greater tissue destruction. And some people have their antibody levels uh, go down and they feel much worse because even though their antibody levels are down, their T-cell destruction is much, much more aggressive. So antibodies have a limited window of telling you what's happening with them. Okay, next question. Can you speak to the relationship between candida and Hashi's Hashimoto's and what can be done to control the candida if you're allergic to fermented foods. So basically, you know, for people that get their immune system severely compromised, they can get overgrowth of candida. This can be measured with like a gastrointestinal profile. Uh, you can do a stool, stool test and they can culture and look for bacteria and do advanced testing to look at yeast growth levels and report that. So it's not uncommon for those that have autoimmunity and, and weakened immune function, uh, especially in their gastrointestinal immune system, that these things take place. So just because you're allergic to fermented foods doesn't mean that that's your only option. Typically with candida, the big issues are during your overgrowth, you have to be 100% off sugar. I mean, 100%. You can't have any kind of sugar. And then uh, you also, you know, really, to make it simple, need to strengthen your immune system. That could be done lots of different ways, and uh, there's a lot of variables there. So it could be as simple as sleeping more. It could be you could take nutraceuticals to support your immune system. There's no shortage of nutraceuticals out there to support your immune system. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not uncommon for people with Hashimoto's to have candida overgrowths, and just being allergic to fermented foods is not a big deal because you can you can support your gut other ways. And the key thing with fermented foods is that they're basically increasing your healthy probiotic uh, or healthy bacterial levels. So you can do the same thing just with fiber. If you had foods that are high in fiber, or even took a fiber supplement, uh, fiber supplements uh, can have the same effect that fermented foods are having in your gut. So despite your uh, allergy to fermented foods, you will still be able to really support your gut immune function by just uh, having fiber. Okay, next question here. Why would my thyroglobin antibodies rise after going gluten-free for months? I didn't substitute with a lot of processed gluten-free food. So the reason your antibody count has gone up 
could be lots of things. It's not directly related to gluten. Like people sometimes they have Hashimoto's, they think if they remove gluten, everything should happen. And you know what? For some people it does, but for most people it does not. So there are lots of triggers that can flare up uh, Hashimoto's. You could be sensitive to dairy and you need to actually be gluten and dairy free. Gluten and dairy have similar proteins. So when you get exposed to dairy, you, st you can still have what's called cross reactivity and your immune system will still be flared up. Um, because the proteins of gluten and dairy are so similar. And uh, that's one issue. You could have other foods you're sensitive to besides gluten. Most people have autoimmunity are sensitive to all grains. They're definitely sensitive to, to uh, casein. It's very common. The most common sensitivities of people have autoimmunity and Hashimoto's would be, in addition to uh, gluten and, and uh, grain products and milk and casein, would be egg protein, uh, albumin, um, soy protein, uh, corn, those are the really most common tr triggers. Whey is also a very common trigger. So you could be on a gluten-free diet, but you've been drinking like a whey protein shake every day, and that's why your levels are still really high. So, so I hope that answers your question. Second part of this question is also, if someone has positive thyroglobin antibodies, but negative TPO antibodies, does that mean they have thyroiditis and not Hashimoto's? No. So if either one of the antibodies, TG, thyroglobin antibodies, or TPO, Thyroid peroxide antibodies are elevated. That that's the mark of Hashimoto's. Next question. I purchased the Hashimoto's course. I think they're referring to the course that I put out, Hashimoto Solving the Puzzle. And they write, but I'm confused about this functional lab ranges on reverse T3. I thought 25 to 30 was considered high. So you know, with reverse T3. Um, and we have a podcast just on an interpreting lab test. But reverse T3 is a laboratory marker that goes up when a person isn't able to ac act accurately or effectively convert their T4 to T3. And T3 is the main thyroid hormone that impacts metabolic activity. For those, you can just use your conventional lab range because reverse T3 that's being done by labs are done by different methods. So look at the methodology, uh, differences that may be a factor. And for the most part, reverse T3, when it's abnormal, it's, there's isn't really a functional range for it. It'll be, it'll be outside the laboratory reference range. And then the last question, I'm wondering how others have managed the COVID vaccine. I have four autoimmune disease diseases, chronic fatigue, Hashimoto, psoriasis, and recently type 1 diabetes. My body doesn't tolerate any supplements and only T3 antidepressants, and now insulin. I'm scared it will react to the vaccine and lose the limited quality of the life I have. Well, you, you know, there is definitely concerns with, <clears throat> with vaccinations for people that have autoimmunity. And uh, the, the truth is that we don't really know that what the data is because there is no data. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the problem we have, but it's possible that either the infection or the actual virus or the vaccine can be a trigger. So there are subgroups of people and we don't know what the actual size is, but, but there will be small subgroups of people that will react to vaccination and have their autoimmune disease flare up. It's certainly not the majority of people. And at this time, um, we're not seeing it with, uh, with autoimmunity enough to be concerned, it's but does happen to some people. And then there are some people that get the infection and end up with activation of their Hashimoto's or may even develop autoimmune disease. So in reality, exposure to those viral proteins, whether it's vaccination or the actual infection, may have a chance to flare it up. So uh, I can understand your level of confusion 
and concern. But in reality, we don't have information and we don't know how to identify which subgroups of people, because it's not just autoimmunity, but what subgroups of people, even with autoimmunity, would have a risk for the vaccine alone being a trigger. But, you know, with the, the new strain of Delta going around and, and and being so contagious, you know, a lot of the experts have pointed out, too, it's just a matter of time when you get exposed to it. So at some point, you may get exposed to the to the actual virus. Now, the virus has 24 different proteins. So the virus has what are called nuclear proteins, membrane proteins, envelope proteins, and spike proteins. And then it's subdivided into 24 different proteins. Each of those different viral proteins have an immune-stimulating effect. So for things, things with the mRNA vaccine, you're getting exposed to only the spike protein, which is one amino acid sequence, which is repeated, but it's just one amino acid sequence. So some people have theorized that maybe getting the vaccine is is better because you're only getting exposed to one response and you're going to get exposed to the Delta variant anyways. Other people are very concerned about mRNA technology and they don't feel comfortable with that yet. And yes, you can, you know, it's, it's a new, it's a new form of, uh, vaccination. So at the end of the day, I just have to know that there isn't any clear data. So you can't make a choice based on what the actual research has shown because research hasn't shown anything. And let me tell you something, they're not going to such a small, they're not going to do subgroup analysis for autoimmunity and they're not going to find which subtypes could be reactive. And I don't even know how that this study design could be conducted. And they certainly haven't done that with any other um, vaccine. So you're going to have to kind of decide what's right for you and make that choice. Anyways, I hope that answers your question. And thank you all for submitting questions for, for the podcast. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.